0: to the Michael Anthony Bible Teaching Podcast. This episode covers the Book of Acts, How Christians Live. You can enjoy more messages like this with the free Courage Matters app available in your app store. If you'd like to request Michael for an interview, guest appearance, or as a keynote speaker for your event, click the Invite tab on the Courage Matters app or on CourageMatters.com.
1: Deep darkness is no match for the light. Deep darkness, no match for the light. You might not know what I mean by that, but by the time we're done, you will know exactly what that means, and you will be a person who knows what your next steps are in your walk with God. Did you know that God has next steps for you? He does have an agenda for you. He has a plan for you. He has a purpose for your life, and He wants you to accept His plan. He wants you to accept His purpose, and He wants you to walk in His light. Look with me at Acts chapter 26, beginning in verse 1, as we continue our verse by verse series through the entire book of Acts. We're nearing the end, but we're not at the end yet, and I plan on preaching this as if it were the beginning. How about that? Because it could be your beginning. Could be your beginning of your next steps and your walk with God. Could be the turning over of a new leaf in your life. Acts chapter 26, beginning in verse 1. So Agrippa, this is the king, said to Paul, You have permission to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense. Now, the thing that's interesting about this whole context is that it's really unnecessary. This is not a formal tribunal, it's not a formal court proceeding. It actually was unnecessary except for the fact. It's kind of like a sideshow that's happening here. It's not a formal judicial hearing. There's nobody here who has authority to officially, legally do anything to the Apostle Paul. This is a self-imposed thing because Paul made the mistake, humanly speaking, supernaturally, it wasn't a mistake. He made the mistake of appealing to Caesar. He said, I want to go to Rome because you were going to punish me. You already were punishing me. The Romans were punishing him. And you shouldn't have done that because I didn't have a fair trial, and I'm a Roman citizen, and a Roman citizen should have a fair trial, should be tried justly, and since that didn't happen, I want to go to Caesar. Now what that would mean is that Paul was going to face none other than Nero, and if you know your history, Nero has a very bad reputation, one of the worst Most despicable, dastardly leaders in all of history. But this is on the front end of Nero's reign, and he didn't yet garner for himself a terrible reputation. So Paul made this insistence. He said, I want to go to Caesar, which is the reference to the leader of all of the Roman world. I want to go to Rome. I want to have a Roman trial. And so had he not done that, he wouldn't be appearing before Felix and Festus and now Agrippa. None of that would have happened. So the irony behind this is that some of his imprisonment, some of what's taking place here, is because of his own appeal, because of his own insistence. He refused to sit down and shut up about Jesus when everyone else was telling him to do so. And he's a great example for us today. Do you sit down and shut up when other people coerce you at work? When family members tell you, we don't want to hear about this Jesus? When the world is telling us more and more, we don't want to hear from conservative, evangelical Christians, Bible-believing Christians, do you sit down and shut up? Do you cave in? Do you back off when the world tells you, we don't want to hear about this Jesus? Paul is a great example for us of what it means to stand up and speak out in a world, in a situation where they need to hear the truth about the gospel. And so all of what we're reading is a result, the rest of the book of Acts is the result of one man, one man, one individual. How many? One. It shows us the value of one life, one person who has a, an unstoppable determination to stand up and speak out for the Lord Jesus Christ regardless of what the consequences might be. That's why what we're reading is taking place. All he would have had to do is recant and say, you know this whole idea about going to Rome? Forget about all of that." that. He has multiple opportunities through all of what we're seeing. At any time, he could have said, I was out of my mind. Temporary insanity. What was I doing? I want out. I want my freedom. I want my freedom. And so he's imprisoned, participating in this kind of a court case with no real teeth in the bite. They don't have any ability to make a formal decision. This is all happening because he insists on being faithful to Jesus. And what would our nation be like today? Can you imagine what our nation would be like today if God's people, meaning you, meaning me, meaning we, if we stood up and spoke out about the things we need to speak up about, the things we need to stand up for. It's not things, it's a person. If we stood up and spoke out more unapologetically, more courageously, more humbly, we need a big dose of humility today in our nation, beginning with God's people in the church. Can you imagine what would happen in this nation if hundreds of... And hundreds and thousands and thousands of followers of Jesus were following him so closely that they were standing up and speaking out with the filling of the Holy Spirit. Our nation would experience the spiritual awakening we all know that we need. We all know that we need it. We need a spiritual awakening in this nation. And I'm not talking about the kind they do down south where they have a set of meetings and they say, we're going to have a group, we're going to have a revival meeting. We're going to hold a revival. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about a real sweeping movement of the Spirit of God. And if it's going to be, it's up to you and it's up to me. It's up to you and it's up to me. It's up to you and it's up to me. You and me make up we. We, the body of Christ, are responsible for the spiritual condition of our nation. And it's time, it's time that we take responsibility for that. We accept responsibility for that. And we say to the Lord, you know what, Lord? I humbly, gratefully, gleefully accept the challenge that you have thrown down to my generation in the body of Christ at this particular time in history. I'm going to be a person who's on fire for you. My family is going to not just be a family, I'm gonna be on fire. We're gonna be on fire as a family. I'm not just going to be a man, I'm going to be a man of God. I'm not just gonna be a woman, I'm gonna be a woman of God. I'm going to learn what it takes to stand up and speak out for the Lord Jesus Christ and for everything that Jesus stands for, for such a time as this, in the midst of what's happening in our nation. In the midst of all that we're seeing, all the decline, the fact that our nation is marching away from God, as for me and my house, as for you and your house, as for us and our house, how about if we get really serious about the Lord Jesus Christ? I don't simply want to read about Acts chapter 26, about how a man was on fire for God, and close the Bible and say, look at what God did through that guy. I'm trying to look for ways about what God can do through this guy. You should be looking for ways. What can God do through this person? When you look in the mirror, you want to be that person who is filled with, led by the Holy Spirit. You want to be that agent of change that the United States of America needs to see. You want to be the person who's standing up and speaking out in the midst of all this tremendous nonsense that we're seeing happen in our nation. The change that needs to happen out there needs to begin right here in your heart, in your mind, in your life, in your family, in this church and churches all around this nation. I don't know about you, but I'm sick and tired about waiting for somebody else to bring the hope and change, especially when they're not filled with the Holy Spirit. What is wrong with us? Are we out of our minds? We're waiting for the world to bring the change that God said we need to bring? What is wrong with us? Maybe God wants a smaller number of people. Maybe God wants a smaller number of people because God doesn't want large size. God isn't interested in speed, size, and numbers. He's interested in commitment. That's what's lacking in the body of Christ. We've heard the gospel so much, we could recite it in our sleep. And don't you fool yourself. You know more about the gospel if you live in the United States of America than many people in third world countries who don't know it. You'd be able to be a teacher in a Sunday school class and even preach a sermon, most of us, with even what we consider to be an inadequate knowledge of the Bible in the United States if we've gone to church for any length of time compared to people in other countries who don't get the opportunity and don't have the freedom that we have. Listen, people say, well, maybe this country could use a little bit of persecution. Look how God grew the church in the book of Acts through persecution. Listen, why is it that if God can be sovereign in persecution, he can't be sovereign in freedom? What is wrong with us? We've got such tremendous freedom to preach the gospel all we want. You know the only reason why we're not standing up speaking out? Because a little bit of peer pressure. Because we don't we get a little uncomfortable, get a little hot under the collar, get a little bit nervous because a coworker doesn't want to hear it. Or a family member doesn't want to hear it. That's the reason why we're not standing up for Jesus in the United States at this particular time when there is a greater need than at any other time across the nation for people to see what a real Christ follower looks like. That's what's disqualifying us for being a faithful witness to Jesus, our own reputation. I don't want to read Acts chapter 26 about how Paul was filled with the Holy Spirit and on fire for God and close it and say, that was then, but this is now. This is what we need in our lives right now. We need God to move in our lives. You need to be that woman of God. You need to be that man of God. You need to be that child of God. You need to be that family of God. When people look at you, they say, There is a God. His name is Jesus. There is a Savior. His name is Jesus. I know him personally, and I'd love to introduce you to him too, because he's the cure for what ails me. He's the cure for what ails the nation. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He still saves, he wants to save and we need him to save us. This is a story about a man who's on fire for God as an example for each and every one of us. Difficulty and hardship come to him in his personal life for one reason and one reason only. He's committed to Jesus. He's unwavering. He's not willing to sit down and shut up when he had every opportunity to do so. He is willing to put himself in harm's way so that he could have a larger and larger audience to reach people for Jesus. That's how convinced Paul was of the need for every single human being to be saved. Now, if that was good enough for him in the first century and he saw things that I didn't see, he saw things that you didn't see, so I can trust him as a faithful witness, being convinced for all the right reasons. If Paul could be this persuaded to be on fire for Jesus based on what he saw and who he knew, and it could change everything about his life, then there's a lesson in it for you and for me. You absolutely can go into the workplace and stand up and speak out for Jesus. You can do it in your family, and it needs to happen in this nation. I'm sick and tired of waiting for somebody else to lead the hope and change that God gave the church to lead. We are supposed to be the hope and change. In humility, filled with, led by the Holy Spirit, get out there and make a difference this week, courtesy of the supernatural enablement of the Holy Spirit. Paul is standing before Agrippa because he refused to sit down and shut up. And so Agrippa says to Paul in verse 1 of Acts chapter 26, you have permission to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense. He gives a kind gesture. He's gesturing to him in a way of acknowledging him because he's before the king. Verse 2, I consider myself fortunate that it's before you, King Agrippa. I'm going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews. Even though this is not a formal trial, he's using this as an opportunity. His imprisonment, self-imposed as it would be, self-imposed as it is, he's using it as an opportunity not to get himself free, but to get the king free. Isn't that amazing? The king is the one who's in bondage. Festus is the one who's in bondage. Bernice, the king's wife, they're the ones who are in bondage. So you got this guy who's in prison by his own freedom that he has in Christ, trying to get the people who are really in prison, although they're free, out from underneath their sin. What an amazing, selfless example he is. I consider myself fortunate that it's before you, King Agrippa. I'm going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews, especially because you're familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. My manner of life from my youth, spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem. It's known by all the Jews. They've known for a long time if they're willing to testify that according to the strictest party of our religion, I've lived as a Pharisee. So this is an argument. He begins his argument, his appeal by ethos, his credibility, his reputation and how he was a very religious person. You know, you can be a very religious person and be completely lost nonetheless. You can be addicted to heroin, addicted to pornography. You can be a person who is a gossip and a slanderer and a murderer, and you can be just as guilty as a devoutly religious person. See, the truth of the matter is that every single one of us is in the same condition. We're all in the same boat, rowing in the same direction, and that direction is away from God. It doesn't matter if you're a religious person or if you're a person who we would think, well, that person needs Jesus. We all need Jesus. Paul was a devoutly religious person, a Pharisee. If you're going to be a religious person, that's what you want to be. You want to be a Pharisee. You want to be a leader of the Jewish people. You want to talk about religion? This guy, he had it down. He knew what religion, as far as human standards, was all about. And yet he was deeply immersed in darkness. He was deeply immersed in darkness. You can be a religious person, you can be a devout person, you can be a person who's engaged in all kinds of ritual. But if you don't have Jesus as your Savior, then your religion is not going to save you, okay? Religion does not save anybody. It will not ever save anybody. If it was able to save somebody, then surely Paul, who was a Pharisee, raised up as a Jew of Jews, he could have been, he should have been saved. He qualified for it. And what's he doing? He's saying, "I'm disqualified. You got to be very careful that you don't think your religion is going to save you. The drug addict who's down and out, the pornography addict who's down and out, the rich business person whose God is their money is in just as deep and dastardly and dark a situation as the thoroughly religious person who thinks they're self-righteous by all the things that they do. The bottom line is, do you know Jesus as your Savior? A number of years ago, when Times Square Church was just starting, David Wilkerson... Author of the cross and the switchblade felt led by God to come from Texas to go up to New York City to plant a church. And I used to go there when I used to live in New Jersey. I used to try to get to Times Square Church as much as possible because I was a big fan of David Wilkerson. Love to hear his preaching and in the early days especially there was a real movement of God there's still movement of God there but in the early days when that church was just starting and I was there in the er, the beginning weeks of that whole thing you go into the Mark Hellinger Theater which is where they gather you go into the Mark Hellinger Theater and you come into their auditorium into their sanctuary that used to put Broadway plays on and you'd see tens and tens, if not hundreds of people in the front of the stage before the service started, 30 minutes before the service started. And you know what those people were doing? They were calling out to God. They were praying, they were petitioning God, saying, oh, God, move. And they were calling out to God. You couldn't walk into that auditorium and recognize what was happening without being pulled in. You want to participate in some of that. Fire begets fire. And I remember one of the times when I was on my way over there, I got into the lobby, and I said, hey, is David Wilkerson preaching here today? And the guy behind the counter said, do you know Jesus? It's as if he didn't even hear what I said. I said, yeah, I know Jesus, but is David Wilkerson preaching here? He said, well, that's that's good that you know Jesus, because it doesn't matter whether David Wilkerson's preaching or not. You need to know Jesus. Are you sure you know Jesus? And he started getting underneath my skin, talking about this Jesus who I already knew as my Savior, And I thought, why is this guy going off on a rabbit trail? The guy wasn't on a rabbit trail. The guy was hitting the bullseye point after point. See, what they learned to do in Times Square Church, because there was a little bit of celebrity-driven issue, because a well-known author writing a well-known book, David Wilkerson, Crossing the Switchblade, people would go up and they would want to make sure that Wilkerson was preaching, And they'd call the church and say, is he preaching today? And they would make sure that they wouldn't tell people who was preaching at the church because it didn't matter whether it was Dave Wilkerson or somebody else, it was all about Jesus. That's who people need to come to see. That should be the attention of everybody, the whole focus, because David Wilkerson couldn't save somebody, no pastor can save anybody. You can't save yourself, only Jesus can save you. And you can be a very religious person You can be somebody who's celebrity-driven, especially in today's world where it's so easy to have a celebrity focus, your favorite pastor, favorite Christian program, favorite author. You can have all of that stuff. And before you know it, it kind of is about Jesus, but it's not really about Jesus. See, it doesn't matter whether you're a religious person or whether you're on heroin. We're in the midst of a huge opioid epidemic in our nation. Governor Tom Wolfe of Pennsylvania declared Pennsylvania to be in a state of emergency just a few weeks ago because of the opioid epidemic in our state. Listen, we've got another epidemic all around the world where people think that they're going to get to heaven because they're good people. It doesn't matter if you're a religious person or if you're a heroin addict. If you don't have Jesus as your savior, you're not going to see Jesus and enter into an eternity with him and be with him for all eternity. You'll definitely see Jesus. Everybody's going to see Jesus eventually. But the idea of living with him in an eternal state, being with him forever and ever, in order for that to become a reality for you, you've got to be a lot more than religious. You've got to be a lot more than somebody who cleans up your act. You've got to be somebody whose act is cleaned up, not by you, but by Jesus. You've got to know Jesus as your Savior. If you don't know Jesus as your Savior, nothing is going to save you. You've got to know Jesus as your Savior. Take it from the Pharisee, Paul, who was well-versed in Judaism, if he was not saved, what makes you think that you, who aren't even close to being a Pharisee in terms of what you know about the Old Testament and the ritualistic practices that you participate in if you were a Pharisee, myself for that matter, what makes any of us think that if a Pharisee couldn't make it into heaven, even though he was a devoutly religious person, we're all in big trouble? And that's true that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And they're justified freely by the grace, the undeserved favor that comes to us courtesy of Jesus. And that's it. That's it. If you could get into heaven any other way apart from the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, then Jesus died for nothing. So Paul's laying out his case here and saying, listen, you know about my history as being a devout Jew? You understand that? I want you to grasp that I know what I'm talking about here, but my Judaism was not enough. My being a Pharisee and a scholar of the Old Testament was not enough. And you need to listen to this. And he's preaching and teaching a king. That's his audience. Verse 6, Now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our forefathers, to which our 12 tribes hope to attain, as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope, I'm accused by Jews, O king. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? More important for us to understand that the gospel is baked into Judaism. The story of a savior and salvation from the hand of God is baked into the fabric of Judaism. And this is why he's saying, why would anybody be amazed at my teaching and preaching about the resurrection of the dead when the Jews, especially the Pharisees, the Sadducees who preached, denied the resurrection and the existence of the angelic world. But the Pharisees, the leaders of especially the Sanhedrin and the leaders of the Jewish people, they taught what the Old Testament taught, the idea of the resurrection, that God would raise the righteous and the unrighteous, the the saved and the lost. Everybody who dies is going to be raised from the dead and face a day of reckoning, a judgment day. And so this is all baked into Judaism. Now what Paul now transitions to is to help them understand that salvation is not some nebulous thing. Salvation has a name and salvation has a face. His name is Jesus. In the Greek or the English, we would say Jesus. In the Hebrew, Yeshua. Joshua, the Lord saves. Salvation has a name. Salvation has a face. Paul's taking this airplane level view, this this 50,000 foot understanding of salvation and a Messiah, and he's landing the plane and he's helping them understand, listen, I'm talking to you about things that we Jews believe about, that we Jews understand. And Agrippa was familiar with Judaism, understood the teachings of the Jews. He understood all of these things. And now what Paul is doing is he's personalizing it. He's helping him understand that this is that. Jesus, Yeshua, is God's Savior, and he's preaching and teaching about the resurrection, not only of the dead, meaning the righteous and the unrighteous, the saved and the lost, and this idea of a resurrection for a judgment before God, but he's preaching and teaching first and foremost about the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, a literal, historical, a literal historic fact. Everything about Paul's gospel rests on the validity the fact of the resurrection. And we would have to say that Paul would be out of his mind to insist on putting himself through all this difficulty and all this hardship if the resurrection wasn't indeed a fact. And now if he was out of his mind, then you have to make a case for how is this man who you want to say is out of his mind making such a coherent, persuasive, eloquent appeal before a king? because he wasn't out of his mind. If anything, he was a fool for Christ. Are you a fool for Christ? Until you are, you're living your life foolishly. Are you a fool for Christ? Do you bring Jesus into every conversation, every opportunity that you have? Do you look for opportunities, even at the expense of your own livelihood, your own well-being, your own comfort, your own security? Do you look for opportunities to bring Jesus into the world where God has placed you at the workplace, in your family, in your neighborhood, it's good to be a fool for Christ. Here's what it looks like courtesy of the Apostle Paul. Until you are a fool for Christ, you are living your life foolishly. You're squandering opportunities that God has given you. You can accomplish a lot of things in the course of your life, but you don't want to find yourself looking back through your life and saying, wow, I missed opportunities to point people to my Savior. Jesus, Look what's happening here. Not only is the gospel baked into Judaism, but Paul puts that name, that face with Judaism's Savior, Jesus. Verse 9, I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. See? He brings it to a very specific individual, Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. That means to set down a stone or a pebble to officially express his vote of disapproval. And I punished them. He's using plurals here. I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme, to recant, to renounce the sovereignty of Jesus, the lordship of Jesus, the fact that Jesus is Israel's Messiah, the chosen, anointed one that God raised up. Tried to make them blaspheme, and in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to the foreign cities. And so it's probably a reference to Stephen. Remember when they were laying down their garments at Saul's feet? Saul was giving approval of Stephen's death. And the implication here is that's one, that there were others who lost their lives and were imprisoned, and that the Jewish leaders, the Sanhedrin and Paul, they were acting illegally. They did not have the authority under the Romans to put people to death. And so Paul is admitting before the king I was involved in coercive activity, illegal activity. I thought that I was doing what was right by persecuting the church. And I was a righteous, humanly speaking, a self-righteous person, very devout religious person. And I was wrong. I was wrong. I was wrong. One of the most significant things you can do in your life is admit when you're wrong. Until you admit when you're wrong, you're going to get stuck That's why a lot of marriages are stuck, because somebody won't admit that they're wrong. A Spirit-filled, Spirit-led person admits when they're wrong, acknowledges that, so that the grace of God, the power of God can flood into that area and make things right. Turn things around. Powerful. Don't think you're weak when you say that you're wrong, when you acknowledge that you're wrong. When you're transparent and acknowledge that you're wrong, that's the open door for the Spirit of God to come in and flood any and every area where you might have been off base. Look at verse 12. In this connection, meaning his passion to oppose the church, his passion to promote Judaism without knowing Judaism's savior, Jesus. In this connection, his connection with the leaders of the nation of Israel who had given him authority to put people in prison and to persecute them. In light of this connection, I journeyed to Damascus, verse 12, with the authority and commission of the chief priests. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven brighter than the sun that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen on the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language or in Aramaic, a dialect of the Hebrew, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It's hard for you to kick a Against the goats. And I said, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose to appoint you as a servant and a witness to the things in which you have seen me, and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan For this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. To this day, I've had the help that comes from God. And so that I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ or the Messiah must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. And as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you're out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. But Paul said, I'm not out of my mind, most excellent Festus. In fact, Paul is the only one with the most sound mind of all of them. He's the only one who's in his mind, the mind of Christ. I'm not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I am speaking true and rational words for the king knows about these things and to him I speak boldly for I'm persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice for this has not been done in a corner. Meaning everybody is hearing about Jesus. Everybody's hearing about Christianity. Oh, how we need to hear about Jesus again in the United States. I think we've heard about religion. I think we've heard about church. I think we need to hear about Jesus and we need to see what a Christ-following, spirit-filled, spirit-led, Christ-follower looks like in our nation. We need that. And mass. They need that at your workplace. They need that in your family. Verse 27. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time, you persuade me to be a Christian, the last time that the word Christians used in the book of Acts. And Paul said, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. How interesting that the one who's in chains is the most free among them. And the ones who are free and rich and wealthy and powerful are the ones who are in bondage. How compassionate and concerned and focused the Apostle Paul is how filled he is with the Holy Spirit He has willingly put himself in harm's way so that others could be saved. What an example he is for us today, going out of his way to show people the way, Jesus. Verse 30, then the king rose and the governor and Bernice and those who were sitting with them, and when they had withdrawn, they said to one another, this man is doing nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, this man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. And so the journey for Paul to Rome, where he's going to get his day in court, continues. But here what we're seeing is the passion of Paul, the passion that should be in your life for Jesus and for the lost, the passion that will be there when you're filled with and led by the Holy Spirit. There's a theology here that's presented, a theology of light And if you're not paying attention, you'll miss it. And the more you read your Bible, the more the Bible will be that schoolmaster, the more you'll understand that the Bible is the best commentary on itself. The more you read the Bible, the more you'll be able to read the Bible. The more you understand the Bible, the more you'll be able to understand those parts of the Bible you don't yet understand. The Bible is the best commentary on itself. This is now the third time in the book of Acts. Acts chapter nine, Acts chapter 22, and now right here, Acts chapter 26, where the account of Saul's conversion, how he gets saved, is given. And each time, there are different details, not contradictory details, but different details that help us get a full picture of what took place there when he was on his way to Damascus to persecute Jesus. To persecute the church is to persecute Jesus. And look what happens here. He's recounting in verse 12. In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven brighter than the sun that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me, in the Hebrew language, this actually took place. This really happened in history. And Saul is not the only one who's experiencing it. There are certain things that only he experiences. But there are a group of people who are experiencing these things. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It's hard for you to kick against the goads. That was a Greek statement. A goad was a sharp stick or like a whip. It's what you use to make an animal move. And the idea here is that it's hard to resist God. It's hard to resist Jesus. You might be in the process of trying to prove that to be false in your own life. You know anybody who's been resistant to God? When you know that God is nudging you. He's prodding you. And you're resisting him. Many of us have made mistakes where we knew that God was saying, don't do this, and we did it anyway. Or we said, do this, and we didn't do it. God has a way of making it difficult to kick against the goads. Nobody who resists God will ever come out a winner. Nobody. And so what Jesus said to Paul on Paul's way to Damascus It's hard for you to resist me. I'm calling you, and you need to surrender. Did you notice how Paul is describing this whole circumstance? You know, when you see somebody's name used twice, you see that in the Old Testament where somebody receives a calling from God. They have a theophany, a vision of God, and oftentimes the person's name is used twice. And this is what happens in Saul's life here. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Paul describes this as a, a bright light that enveloped developed him, brighter than the light of the sun. Look with me at John's Gospel, chapter 8, verse 12. John, chapter 8, verse 12. Again, Jesus spoke to them, saying, this is Jesus' testimony about himself. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Notice what Jesus is laying down. Are you picking up what Jesus is laying down here? Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness. He doesn't say whoever has a mental assent to me, whoever is a religious person. It's all about following Jesus. And following Jesus is what takes care of the darkness in our lives. When we follow Jesus, the darkness is consumed. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness. Darkness. If you're walking in darkness, it's because you've chosen to stop following Jesus or perhaps to have not made a choice, a decision to follow him, to start following him in the first place. There's a theology in the Bible about light, and it's all centered upon the person and the works of Jesus. Look with me at 1 John chapter 1, 1 John chapter 1, just find 2 John and go backwards, you'll find it, Okay. 1 John chapter 1, in verse 5 and verse 6, this is the message we have heard from him, from God, and proclaim to you. Specifically, the message we heard from Jesus, that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. See, God saves us, he rescues us, removes all of our sins, so that as a byproduct of that, we would no longer continue to walk in darkness, but we would walk in repentance, which is to walk in the light. If your lifestyle is not continually changing, where you're understanding and discovering more areas of darkness that need to be consumed by the light, Jesus, if you're not recognizing that, it's an indication that you're stagnant. It's an indication that you've stopped walking after the Lord. You've stopped pursuing the Lord. God saves us and sanctifies us, sets us apart so that we can live a set-apart life, a lifestyle. So the teachings of Jesus do matter. Looking more Christ-like in character does matter. God is interested in you looking more like Jesus in your behavior, thinking more like Jesus in your mind, speaking more like Jesus, looking at the kinds of things that Jesus would look at, listening to the kinds of things that Jesus would listen to. It's all about your Christ-likeness, your transformation that begins the moment you come to the light, Jesus. The moment you accept Jesus as your Savior, you have the ability now that you never had before, the ability to walk in the light where otherwise you would have been floundering around in the darkness. And you might have even been a very religious person. You might be a very religious person right now. If all you have is religion and you don't have the Savior, you're in as much darkness as somebody who's in the deepest, most dastardly. Think about a sin that you think is particularly heinous. You're just as lost if you don't have Jesus as your Savior, as that individual. Darkness is dark, whether it's religious darkness or cultural darkness, it's all darkness compared to the light who is Jesus. And God saves us, removes our sin, sanctifies us so that we can walk in a lifestyle, live in a way that's pleasing to Jesus, in a way that reflects the light of our lives. Look at First Timothy. Chapter six, beginning in verse 13. First Timothy chapter six, beginning in verse 13. Interestingly enough, this was written by Paul. And here we're going to see he's talking about light. And we just saw in Acts chapter 26, he says, there was a bright light that shined around me, brighter than the light of Of the Son. It's this individual who wrote these words in First Timothy chapter 6, beginning in verse 13. I charge you in the presence of God, who gives life to all things, and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep this commandment unstained and free from reproach. Holiness does matter until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only Sovereign, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, Jesus, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see to him the honor and eternal dominion. Amen. Paul has to stop and come up for air because he's probably remembering that unapproachable light that he saw on the way to Damascus. He's describing it the best he can. We're an eloquent man, we're seeing his eloquence in Acts chapter 26, an educated man, a Pharisee of Pharisees, raised in Judaism, a scholar, could speak Hebrew, could speak Aramaic, could write multiple languages, words are failing him. He sees God in the only way that it's acceptable, he sees him as a bright light, brighter than the sun. But not like Eastern religions where all roads, they will say, lead to the same God. This is not the same God. He puts a name to this God. He has the face of this God. It's Jesus of Nazareth. That is the God. The same one who said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. There is exclusivity in the claims of Jesus. There's exclusivity in the proclamation of Paul's gospel. He doesn't say, listen, the God Who you want to worship is acceptable. He's tying Jesus to this God. He's helping everybody everywhere understand the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the God, capital G, of God's, lowercase g, is wrapped up in a person named Jesus, the Son of God. That baby who was wrapped up in swaddling clothes in a manger was the same one who left his place, Jesus. The almighty, always existent Son of God, who always dwelled in unapproachable light, left his throne to reach down to you and to me while we were in the midst of darkness, whether it's religious darkness or something else. God knew that you were in the thick of darkness and needed to come to the light, Jesus. He knew it. And he did something about it. He revealed his son Jesus, or maybe he hasn't done that yet, but he's in the process of doing that right now. He's revealing Jesus to you right now. And you're recognizing that you need to come to Jesus, the same Jesus that Paul came to, the same Jesus who was raised from the dead, the same Jesus spoken of in the Old Testament scriptures. Salvation has a name, salvation has a face. God is known through Jesus And today can be your day where you give up the deep darkness and you let the light, the light of Jesus, the person of Jesus overcome the darkness. Whether it's religious darkness or something else, doesn't matter. It's all darkness if you don't have Jesus. It's all darkness if you don't have Jesus. And look what's happening here in Acts 26. I want you to pay particular attention to verse 18. 19 and 20. If you forget everything else that God has said to you, which I don't recommend, if you forget everything else that God has said to you in the course of our time, don't forget this. Verse 18, Paul's message to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God. Satan has a multiplicity of means at his disposal to deceive people, to keep people in bondage. He uses religion to keep people in bondage. He uses heroin. He uses pornography. He uses gossip. He uses slander. He uses money. He uses good looks. He uses anything and everything that you can possibly imagine to keep people in darkness and to prevent them, if he can, from coming to the light. Jesus to turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Notice faith in me. Jesus, not faith in a God somewhere, someplace, some nebulous entity. Oh Eastern religion. No, it's not that. It's faith in the person and the finished work of Jesus, finished as in raised from the dead. The crucifixion was sufficient to take away every single one of your sins. It's the only thing that will take away every single one of your sins. And it's by personal faith in Jesus and his finished work on the cross, and believing that God the Father raised him from the dead, demonstrating his seal of approval. It's one and done. Jesus' sacrifice is sufficient, and if you're trusting in something, someone other than Jesus to rescue you, you're going to come up empty when it matters most, when you see him face to face. It's by faith in me, Jesus. Therefore, verse 19, O King Agrippa, Paul's making his appeal. I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. Repentance is your new way of life once you come to the light. Once you come to Jesus, repentance is what your life must be about. If you don't understand repentance, a repentant lifestyle, you're not walking in the light. Forget about John 8:12. Forget about 1 John chapter 1 verse 5 and 6. Forget about 1 Timothy chapter 6 verses 13 through 16. If you're not embracing repentance as a lifestyle, you have stopped Walking in the light. You are no longer walking in a manner worthy of the calling and the salvation that you received. The whole idea of getting saved is that you're no longer continuing to go in the same direction. You do a 180, and now. You're following the light, not the darkness. You were following religious darkness. You were following the sins of the world, that kind of darkness. You were hoping in other things to find satisfaction and fulfillment apart from God. That's what sin is. Sin is any time and every time you try to get a legitimate need met in an illegitimate way. And there are a boatload of ways to get a legitimate need met in an illegitimate way. You don't believe me? Keep your eyes open today. Keep your ears open today and you'll come across just a few of them very quickly. To sin is to take a legitimate need that God has given you and to seek to have that legitimate need met in an illegitimate way. Anything other than the light is darkness. Anything other than the light is darkness. Anything. Repentance is about turning from the darkness turning from the things that you're looking to for satisfaction apart from Jesus. This is why people get into debt. This is why they get into pornography. This is why they get into opioids. This is why they get into extramarital affairs. This is why they become religious. See how it's all the same? There are many poisons out there. Only one savior. Only one antidote. And what we're seeing here is the central aspect of Paul's message the death of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, and a lifestyle of repentance that results when you give your life to Jesus in real saving faith. Have you gone back to the darkness in any area of your life? Are you trying to get legitimate needs met in an illegitimate way? Have you opened up a Pandora's box thinking it's not just Jesus, it could be another way? Have you complicated what's actually very simple and very serious? very significant, the exclusivity of the person and the work of Jesus and your need to not only accept him as your Savior, but to live for him as your Lord. That's what it means to reject the darkness, to embrace the light who has a name. His name is Jesus. And to continue to walk with Jesus by walking in the light a lifestyle of repentance where you're saying yes to God and no to the things that would otherwise get you and keep you in chains. What a beautiful thing that somebody who's free would allow themselves to be in chains so that he could preach to people who were free but in bondage. You know what? That's what God has called you to do as well. Whatever the case might be, whatever your circumstances, wherever you go, Use the freedom that God has given you in Christ to go into territory where people who are in the thick of darkness need to see the light.
0: You've been listening to the Michael Anthony Bible Teaching Podcast. If you enjoyed this message, you'll love Michael Anthony's Courage Matters Podcast, where he focuses on leadership, relationships, and world events. You can also invite Michael for an interview, guest appearance, or as a keynote speaker for your event. To learn more, visit CourageMatters.com or download the free Courage Matters app. In the meantime, keep looking up. There's no place else worth looking.